Welcome to the Reality Taboo. It's March 2nd, 2024. I'm Jeff. Joining me is my co-host, Ness. Today's topic is eugenics, once again putting the show's motto to the test. The impetus for this topic was the recent Alabama Supreme Court ruling regarding IVF. So let's start with the word eugenics itself. The I think it's important to distinguish between the denotation, the dictionary definition of the word, and the connotation of the word. So start with the denotation, the Greek prefix eu meaning good, genics genes, so it simply means good genes. And it was a term coined in 1883 by Francis Galton, who was a half-cousin of Charles Darwin. And Galton also term, coined the term nature versus nurture. And I went to, out of curiosity, I went to ChatGPT and asked it to give me a an explanation of what eugenics is. And I was uh, pleasantly surprised by the accuracy, I would say, and um, objectivity. So here's what it said. Quote, eugenics is a set of beliefs and practices aimed at improving the genetic quality of a human population by selective breeding or other means. The term was coined in the late 19th century by Francis Galton, a cousin of Charles Darwin, who sought to apply principles of evolution to human society. Eugenics gained popularity in the early 20th century, particularly in the United States and in, in Europe, as a scientific and social movement. There are two main branches of eugenics. Positive eugenics, which promotes the reproduction of individuals with desirable traits, and negative eugenics, which seeks to prevent the reproduction of individuals with undesirable traits. Positive eugenics might involve encouraging individuals with high intelligence or other desirable qualities to have more children, while negative eugenics might involve sterilizing individuals deemed unfit for reproduction, such as those with mental or physical disabilities. So this, as the definition stated, this was a movement that started, uh, well, I should go back. Eugenics as a concept has been around for centuries. Um, I know Plato mentioned it in The Republic. He talked about how uh, different sectors of society needed to be set up and eugenics or basically controlling who bred, who had children and who didn't. Um, so the concept itself has gone back centuries. The, you could look at the caste system in India. So, But the modern iteration of eugenics was began in the late 1800s and I would say peaked in the first three decades of the 20th century. And um, so a few uh, examples of people or things associated with the eugenics movement. The first one, or one of the ones that came to my mind was Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood. She was, interest, side note, interestingly, she was vehemently against abortion. She thought it was an abomination, and she refused, she discouraged anybody coming to the clinics uh, from getting abortions, and she refused to participate in facilitating abortions. Uh, her goal was to legalize contraception in the U.S. She popularized the term birth control, and I don't know if it's fair to call her a eugenicist. I think certain of her goals had uh, eugenic qualities at the very least. She wanted um, 
poor people um, who were perhaps having a lot of children to be at least able to have the choice not to have as many children. So I think the the necessary result of some of her activities uh, were eugenic in effect. And there was also intersection of eugenics with um, human biodiversity, uh, racialism, whatever you want to call it, with Madison Grant, Passing of the Great Race, which was published in 1916. In the book, Grant advocated the sterilization of, quote, undesirables, a treatment possibly to be extended to, quote, types which may be called weaklings, and, quote, perhaps ultimately to worthless race types. He said, quote, a rigid system of selection through the elimination of those who are weak or unfit, in other words, social failures, would solve the whole question in 100 years, as well as enable us to get rid of the undesirables who crowd our jails, hospitals, and insane asylums. The individual himself can be nourished, educated, and protected by the community during his lifetime, but the state through sterilization must see to it that his line stops with him, or else future generations will be cursed with an ever-increasing load of misguided sentimentalism. This is a practical, merciful, and inevitable solution of the whole problem, and can be applied to an ever-widening circle of social discards, beginning always with the criminal, the deceased, and the insane, and extending gradually to types which may be called weaklings rather than defectives, and perhaps ultimately to worthless race types. So eugenics doesn't necessarily have to mean uh, getting rid of certain races, but uh, you could see how it could it lend itself to that. Um, and Brave New World, uh, I would also describe as, as exploring eugenics, maybe from a more negative perspective. This was the Algis Huxley novel published in 1931. Uh, it's been a while since I read it, but in the society... Individuals are engineered in such a way as to fit comfortably in certain uh, slots of hierarchy in the society to uh, facilitate a well-functioning, harmonious society. And in 1927, you have the seminal United States uh, legal case, Buck versus Bell. So I'm going to give some background. I think it's worth spending time on on this case. Um, as I said, it was 1927. The uh, the plaintiff was Carrie Buck, who was a patient at the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded. And the defendant in this case was John Hendren Bell. He was the superintendent of that Virginia State Colony. And uh, at 17, Buck became pregnant as a result of being raped by her adoptive mother's nephew. So um, the family, the adoptive family had Carrie, Carrie Bell committed to the Virginia Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded on the grounds of feeble-mindedness, incorrigible behavior, and promiscuity. And there's some speculation that uh, her commitment to that facility was a way to cover up the adoptive family's embarrassment at their other family member raping Carrie um, and the resulting pregnancy from the rape incident. But regardless, um, 
the it made its way up through the Virginia state court system and was eventually uh, it was approved. Um, the Virginia highest court gave it its stamp of approval. The saying it was constitutional that due process was followed. Everything was on the up and up legally, and so it got appealed to the United States Supreme Court. And at that time, uh, there were at least two. Uh, of the justices were very uh, much on the in the pro eugenics were uh, advocates of the eugenics movement, and so those two were the Supreme Court Justice um, William Howard Taft, who was had previously been president. I believe he's the only person to be both president and a Supreme Court justice. He had previously supported support for uh, had expressed support for eugenics and the person uh, the justice who actually wrote the opinion was uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, he was definitely a eugenicist uh, in 1921 he said quote he said that he had no problem quote restricting propagation by the undesirables and putting to death infants that didn't pass the examination um, so this uh, whole case hinged on the Virginia Sterilization Act of 1924, which allowed a superintendent of uh, various Virginia state hospitals to perform sterilization procedures on impatients. And so that was either uh, vasectomy on men or the removal of fallopian tubes on women. And interestingly, this Virginia state colony was opened in 1910, and it didn't officially completely close until 2020. And so I'm going to read some quotes uh, from the case. The quote, the case comes here upon the contention that the statute authorizing the judgment is void under the 14th Amendment as denying to the plaintiff an error due process of law and the equal protection of the laws. Uh, She, Carrie uh, Buck, was described as, quote, a feeble-minded white woman. And the Act of Virginia approved in 1924 recites that the health of the patient and the welfare of society may be promoted in certain cases by the sterilization of mental defectives. And bottom line is the court upheld the statute instituting compulsory sterilization of the unfit, quote, for the protection and health of the state. And I'm going to quote the conclusion of the Supreme, the United States Supreme Court opinion, again, written by Oliver Wendell Holmes, I think this pretty much sums up uh, a lot of the intellectual framing or basis for eugenics. So Holmes wrote, quote, We have seen more than once that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if it could not call upon those who already sap the strength of the state for these lesser sacrifices, often not felt to be such by those concerned, in order to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Uh, Before we leave this court case, a couple other interesting tidbits. Number one, I know of at least one public middle school in Colorado Springs that's named after Oliver Wendell Holmes, which is kind of surprising that uh, I I can't imagine that 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 name will, will be there much longer. Um, and then number two, during the Nuremberg trials, 
Otto Hoffman, who was a Nazi functionary, he cited Holmes's opinion in Buck v. Bell in his defense during the Nuremberg trials. Um, the other legal case I wanted to discuss is the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial. That's as it's popularly known. It was officially called the State of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes. So a little background on this case. The, uh, in 1925, the Tennessee legislature passed the Butler Act, which prohibited public school teachers from denying the Book of Genesis account of mankind's origin. The law also prevented the teaching of the evolution of man from what it referred to as lower orders of animals in place of the biblical account. And there were uh, some celebrities involved in this case. There was William Jennings Bryan, who was a famous politician from Nebraska, ran for president several times. Uh, he was the special prosecutor in the case. And then Clarence Darrow, arguably the most famous um, defense attorney of the of the early 20th century. He defended John Scopes, and the ACLU also participated um, in, in the defense. And then H.L. Minkin covered the case for the Baltimore Sun, and this was the first U.S. trial to be broadcast via radio. And um, later... There was a play and a movie based on the events called Inherit the Wind, definitely worth watching. Um, and the primary, originally the first defense, um, well, I should say a lot of this court case was staged in a way the, uh, the ACLU and other groups encouraged someone to intentionally violate this Tennessee law. Um, and so that's what this, this scopes the, uh, the high school teacher did. He knew what he was doing. Uh, he intentionally wanted to get a court case going. And so his original defense was academic, uh, academic freedom and that this law violated academic freedom. Uh, but then as the case went on, they shifted their defense a little bit and started arguing that actually evolution itself was not incompatible with Christianity. Um, William Jennings Bryan, who was the prosecution of the case, so was in support of this law, uh, he said his closing argument, part of his closing argument was, quote, if civilization is to be saved from the wreckage threatened by intelligence not consecrated by love, it must be saved by the moral code of the meek and lowly Nazarene. His teachings and his teachings alone can solve the problems that vex the heart and perplex the world. And so all this background hopefully paints a picture that eugenics was a very mainstream position movement. Uh, I mean, you have states passing laws uh, on sterilization. You have the Supreme Court of the United States giving its stamp of approval for sterilization. Um, and it's just, it's hard to imagine this was, you know, less than a hundred years ago, how dramatically things have changed. Um, I think the biggest reason World War II can account for and the Nazis can account for the uh, the main reason why eugenics got completely at least for most people was discredited and, and is kind of a toxic term nowadays um, and so what I hope to explore in the rest of this episode is how eugenics it hasn't gone away 
and I think it's changed. Uh, and we're going to talk about how modern forms of eugenics. As I as we uh, mentioned at the beginning of the show, there is broadly two categories of uh, eugenics. There's positive eugenics, eugenics, and negative eugenics. And I think the the negative eugenics uh, is the one that gets all the for lack of a better word, negative attention. But I would argue all kinds of people uh, practice eugenics every day. Um, The abortion is a tool of eugenics. One of the biggest reasons uh, people get abortions is because of genetic defects uh, of the offspring, Uh, kids with Down syndrome or uh, propensity for diseases, all kinds of, of mental defects, for lack of a better word. So that's certainly a tool of eugenics. People who use IVF, who have the means to use it, are usually very concerned as to who's donating the eggs, who's donating the sperms. The only reason they would uh, be concerned about that is if they believe genetics um, are a huge are a huge thing to be to be concerned about. Um, and to me, that's that's a form of eugenics. Uh, CRISPR is has the potential to be the most powerful tool of eugenics ever created. Where it can, uh, again, I way past my depth, uh, past my knowledge on how it works. But the basic gist is that it allows the genome, the human genome, to be edited and changed, and so certain negative traits or propensities will be removed. And positive ones will be will be added in. Go back to the dimensions of eugenics that we were talking about earlier. I, I think it's more multidimensional than that. In fact, I think the bigger issue in terms of social acceptance is not between positive and negative eugenics, but between voluntary and involuntary eugenics. At a very basic level, mate selection of any type is eugenic. That is the underlying hardware that humans carry around with them through tens of millions of years of evolutionary pressure shapes the things that men and women find sexually attractive, which overwhelmingly correlate positively with desirable genetic traits. Things like hip ratio, um, intelligence, earning capability, personality traits, all of these different things have a eugenic element to them. So as we were saying, the Eugenics movement, the modern eugenics movement got started late 1800s, early 1900s, peaked in the 1920s. And at during that time, I think it's it's very clear that the eugenics movement was associated with the left, uh, the left political spectrum. It was people on the right um, who were opposed to this. I think there was there'd be a lot of overlap between uh, fundamentalist Christians uh, and uh, opposition to eugenics. Um, versus on the left, more embracing of eugenics and um, probably lower religious uh, levels. I'm speculating a bit on that, but that would be my suspicion. Um, and But at the same time, people like Madison Grant, I don't know where they would have fit in on the left-right spectrum uh, in the 1910s, but certainly I think he would be put on the right today. If you said, where was Madison Grant, you know, left, right, you would put him on the right. Um, and now we, I think this, well, Ness, what do you think the, where does the left, right dichotomy come down on eugenics now? 
I think historically it was associated with the left, with progressivism. And then when it fell out of favor, like everything else that falls out of favor, it was then associated with the right because that, especially post-Nuremberg regime, the the status has been if it's a leftist idea, it is good. If it's, if it's a rightist idea, then it's bad. And so, so we have a, a weird historical instance of eugenics being associated with Nazism, where, of course, the Nazis did employ eugenic practices and had a eugenic vision for the future, but it was probably less rigid uh, or at least no more aggressive or a progressive, quote-unquote, than eugenic programs in other Western nations, including the United States. I mean, the United States had mandatory sterilization laws in several states before Nazis even came to power in Germany. And Hitler referenced the a lot of the United States eugenic regime as inspiration for what he implemented uh, when he was in power. There's no obvious reason that eugenics is something that should have a negative connotation. And on an individual level, it, it largely doesn't. I, I, almost anyone, even people who are professed leftists, are not going to deny that nature has a, a large role to play in the way that people manifest them their, themselves. Their, their phenotype does not have some underlying genotypical basis. On an individual level, the the place that it gets uh, very contentious is when those individual uh, tendencies are glommed on to racial groupings. And so it's not that, that people would say that, oh, this person is less intelligent than, intelligent than that person. But when it's this race, on average, is less or more intelligent than that race, that the, the issue politically starts to get really thorny. I'll go out on a limb and speculate that in the future, uh, as CRISPR 2.0 progresses and the genome-wide association studies for things like intelligence that right now there are thousands, tens of thousands of genes that are very mildly, marginally correlated positively or negatively with intelligence. And the interaction of those genes with so many other things makes it, at least at this point, pretty much impractical to say that this gene is for intelligence and that gene is not for intelligence unless it's a severe mutation, a negative mutation in the case of something like trisomy 18 or trisomy 13 where extra genes are, or extra chromosomes are added or some other rare genetic defect markers. When all of that is ironed out, worked out, and gets to the point hypothetically in the future where genetic editing is rather routine and is something that is widely accessible, I think that it may be something that becomes a a point that the left propagates more than the right. It may find its home again on the left because if you have the capacity for genetic engineering, then there's no reason not to mandate that governments and that state institutions effectively level the playing field by allowing poor people, disadvantaged people, people who have been historically oppressed, etc., to have subsidized access to the best genetic editing technology so that the playing field can be leveled in a genetic on a genetic in a genetic sense. How do you think though religion plays into this? Because at least uh, abortion I would say is one aspect or one tool of eugenics. And certainly the most opposition to abortion comes from the religious right. Um, how do you see that? Do, do you see there being a, a 
potential roadblock to acceptance of eugenics, and specifically, let's go to gene editing, do you think that Christianity or uh, religion in general, um, it it could be seen as playing God and thus uh, impermissible? It could be seen playing as God, but that's not going to make it impermissible because Christians and people of religious affiliation have no power to make laws, no institutional power at all, no status. So it doesn't matter if they accept it or not. I think it is also worth pointing out that the eugenics, like eugenics versus dysgenics, well, both of those from an evolutionary perspective are better than no genetics at all. And I think that is one of the big sea changes that have happened over the preceding century since eugenics was something that was uh, accepted and pushed, uh, propagated at the higher levels of society compared to now is that in the past there was, a hundred years ago, fertility rates in every modernized country at the time were well above replacement. And that's no longer the case. And so now the issue, especially with involuntary negative eugenics, sterilization, in other words, is that nobody is having enough children to reproduce themselves. And so further restricting the ability for reproduction is only going to exacerbate the looming inverted demographic pyramid crisis that is manifesting across the Western, really across the entire world outside of sub-Saharan Africa. And oddly enough, the groups that tend to have the most support for eugenics in the way that it can be measured um, tend to have lower fertility, have the lowest fertility rates. From the general social survey, there is a question that very pointedly gets to the heart of what is meant by eugenics. It asks, would you have an abortion or have your partner have an abortion if a genetic test shows that the baby has a serious genetic defect? This question was asked three times, a couple times in the 90s. The last time was in the in 2004, so it is a little bit dated. My assumption is the general pattern holds, uh, especially when broken down by political orientation. So to that question, 54.8% of self-described liberals responded that yes, they would. Uh, 44.4% of moderates did so, and 35.3% of conservatives did so. So by that rendering of eugenics, which is getting rid of genetic defects by through through abortion, the left, even today, is more supportive of eugenics than the right. Uh, if we break it down by religious or uh, religious affiliation, Protestants, uh, 36.2% would do so. 34% of Catholics would do so. 52.3% of those with no religious affiliation would do so. And 77.1% of religiously identified Jews would support what is effectively... Uh, eugenic policy in terms of their own reproduction. Now, again, as I alluded to earlier, I I don't think that the problem with eugenics as a concept has to do nearly as much at the individual level as it does at the racial or, or broader demographic level. And I think it's more because that runs into so many other issues in the total zeitgeist, uh, in terms of status and the equalist ideal and all of these other thorny issues that it comes across uh, that it runs into. But I think at the individual level, the 
association with eugenics, as long as it's not called eugenics, is not nearly as problematic as it is at the group level. And to anticipate the objection uh, raised by Richard Lewontin, most famously uh, known colloquially as Lewontin's fallacy, the idea that there is more genetic variation within races than there is between races, well, that is technically true. It doesn't do the work that its proponents think it does. So there is, of course, more variation in terms of height among the tallest Amerindian man in existence and the shortest Amerindian man in existence than there is between the average height of Amerindians and people of Northwestern European descent. The difference between those group averages is only about three inches, whereas the difference between the tallest and shortest man uh, of Amerindian descent or of Northwestern European descent is going to be measured in feet compared to the average at the group level only being measured in inches. That doesn't then mean that there is no difference in height on average between people of Northwestern European descent and Amerindians. So while that survey you mentioned about whether you would support abortion if you found out your child had a genetic defect uh, that's about the best social survey data we could find on eugenics uh, without actually using the term eugenics. And it was the high, the most supportive of the abortion were uh, in order Jews, irreligious, Protestants, and Catholics. And so since we don't have the data, we'll, we'll have to speculate a little bit. Do you think, Ness, that those that same uh, order would apply on other questions of eugenics or eugenics in general. Um, and I know that the term itself has been poisoned. So if you were able to ask people about whether they support what in in effect is eugenics without using that term, do you think that that same order would would go would would apply Jews, irreligious, Protestants, Catholics? I think the crux of the matter is whether or not it's voluntary versus involuntary. I think when it comes to voluntary eugenics or the avoidance of dysgenics voluntarily at the individual level, there really is no opposition left, right, center, religious or irreligious to that idea with the exception of maybe the most extreme form of opposition to negative eugenics in the form of abortion for genetic defects. But outside of that, so like IVF is not something that has a lot of opposition on the left or in not even to, to break it down left, right, but in terms of status and what is acceptable versus what is not. Uh, eugenics, again, voluntarily at the individual level in the form of IVF or sperm donation or any of these other things is totally acceptable in modern Western, in the modern Western world. And so I don't think there's any opposition to eugenics or the idea of what eugenics is getting after in that case, where the opposition comes in hot and heavy is in the case of involuntary eugenics. So that would be like forced sterilization on the negative side. And then I suppose uh, like forced propagation on the positive side, maybe forced sperm donation for people who have high intelligence or have low impulsivity, high time preference, whatever the case might be. I think forcing people to give up sperm or forcing people to donate eggs or, or correspondingly precluding people uh, who have negative traits from being able to reproduce, I think that's where the strong association, negative association with the idea of eugenics comes in. 
you alluded to CRISPR not being sophisticated enough yet to be used by certainly by everyday people. I, I think that is changing though. In 2018, there was a Chinese scientist who uh, used CRISPR, used gene editing to remove. Uh, I, again, I'm way out of my depth as far as the technical. Uh, aspects of it, but he essentially removed, uh, took HIV parents and used IVF and allowed them to have a, have twin girls and was able to remove that gene that put the girls at risk of having HIV. And so that these HIV positive parents were able to have chill or have twin girls that didn't have any uh, HIV. And it, from what we can tell, it was successful. And it's hard to tell what the Chinese Communist Party, what, what their true motivations are, of course. But uh, supposedly this was done, this was not sanctioned by uh, the Chinese government and they, they charged, uh, this, they indicted this, this scientist. Um, but I, th- I think 2018, that's going to be, a, it seems like that's a hinge point and who knows how fast the technology will progress, but it seems like it's at least uh, making progress. Yeah, I think that's a possibility, but I'm a little skeptical. I don't think in the case of something, uh, an easily identifiable gene like that, that something could also be whittled away or, or avoided through current IVF procedures. And we don't even know if that's going to be successful or not. And again, the big change for gene editing or the the watershed moment for gene editing will not come when the capacity to do it or not is there, which we're already there. We're to that point now where the genetic editing can occur. But as we mentioned earlier, that genetic editing, we really only, it's, it's not so much that we lack the technologies that there is a lack of understanding in terms of what genes correlate to what desirable traits. Again, it's easy to identify specific genes that have uh, huge negative mutational associations like single genes that that cause people to be missing limbs or have an extra chromosome that results in re- severe retardation and that sort of thing. But in terms of does this A and this T, this G, this C, how do these correspond at various spots in terms of intelligence that we're not even close or at least publicly, the, the data that's publicly available, not even close to being able to do anything with the editing technology that we have because the knowledge and, and the consequences of selecting various genes uh, for a very, very marginal association with this or that positive trait are not understood well enough to negate the risk that they may be causing some other negative association that is not as well understood. If we think about it in terms of computer coding, for example, it is a lot easier to look at a line of code and remove some issue that is causing obvious problems than it is to go change some bit of existing code to putatively make some process better without disrupting a lot of the underlying code that it refers to if you don't understand the entire code base. And so it's a, it's a lot easier to remove specific bad pieces of coding, bad pieces of genetic material than it is to build positive genetic material one base pair at a time. I think the case for voluntary eugenics is already there from a, an equalist perspective. So if you think 
without even taking genetics into account, just existing socioeconomic status, if you take a couple that has a net worth of, say, $10 million, if that couple has a single child, Richie Rich, he, he inherits $10 million upon his parents' death. But if that couple has, say, 10 children, then each of those children only have a net worth only, have a net worth of a million dollars that rolls over to them. Correspondingly, you take a, a couple that has a very modest net savings, say $10,000, and if they have a single child, well, that single child gets that $10,000, but if they split that across 10 children, well, each of those children only have $1,000 to their name. So if we allow socioeconomic status to be a crude proxy stand-in for uh, genetic desirability, well, in the low fertility case of that wealthy family only having one child, and in the extreme fecundity example of the poor family having 10 children, we have a difference of $1,000 in net worth versus $10 million in net worth between the 10 poor children and the one really wealthy child. That's a factor of 10,000. The difference there is is 10,000 times more that the wealthy child has than the poor child has. If instead the wealthy couple has 10 children and each of those children inherit a million dollars and the poor couple has only a single child and that single child inherits $10,000, well now the factor has been reduced down to just 100 times as much. So it's a it's a 100x reduction in inequality from the get-go if the wealthy family breeds more and the poor family breeds less. So that is, in simple terms, to make the idea easy to understand why eugenic policies, voluntary positive eugenic policies and voluntary negative eugenic policies could have a equalizing effect on society more generally. And that's why I think that impulse that underlies the reality of those two cases is why if genetic engineering of CRISPR 2.0 becomes feasible and uh, humans are effectively able to be programmed genetically prior to birth, that it's going to be the left that is going to jump on that and push for it more strongly than the right will. So it sounds like you think the strongest support will come from the left slash less religious and then presumably the greatest opposition would come from the more conservative religious segment of the population. Well, yeah, I, th- I think, but the opposition, if, if it works, it will be wildly popular. And I think the opposition might be comparable to, say, the opposition to technology more generally among groups like the Amish. So you might have some hyper-religious types who don't use it. But I think the vast majority across most of the political and cultural spectrum will use it. However, I think that it's a bit of a red herring in that the issue facing much of the Western, really all of the developed world now, is not so much uh, Mike Judge idiocracy in the future as as much as it is just cratering fertility across the board. So I don't think that the reason that people who might otherwise have children are not having children now is because they think that their child will be too will, won't be tall enough or won't have or won't have the right eye color or won't have high enough intelligence or whatever the case might be. If you come up with a list of the top 100 reasons why young people today aren't having children in the West, I don't. I don't know that that makes the top 100. So I 
in, in terms of fixing the fertility problem to the extent that it is recognized as a problem. And I, I think increasingly it is being recognized as a problem. I don't think genetic editing is going to make a dent in that one way or the other. But that said, I do think if it becomes possible, if it becomes a technology that is usable and the consequences, the negative consequences don't come close to outweighing the positive benefits that it will be utilized, but I think it will still be generally utilized in a population that is below replacement fertility. One technology that can could make the difference between uh, two people having kids and not having kids is IVF. Um, and that brings us to the recent Alabama Supreme Court decision. Um, so this was a ruling in February 2024 the case is LePage versus the Center for Reproductive Medicine. And the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos can be considered children under the state's wrongful death of a minor act, which allows parents to recover punitive damages for the death of a child. The case was brought by several couples whose embryos were destroyed when a patient wandered into a fertility clinic, removed stored embryos, and dropped them on the floor. And I found some data on IVF. A 2023 Pew Research Center survey said that 4 in 10 American adults said they have used fertility treatments or know someone who has. And that was up from 33% five years ago. And there's an article I found called Americans are ready to test embryos for future college chances survey shows. And this is from the MIT Technology Review, February 9th, 2024. Um, 38% of Americans say they would probably use genetic testing of IVF embryos if it increased the chance their child could attend a top 100 university. 28% of Americans say they would probably use gene editing of IVF embryos if it increased the chance that their child could attend a top 100 university. And genetic modification of children is prohibited in the U.S. and many countries. And uh, about 6% of the American public is morally against IVF. And so there are polls showing approval for banning IVF ranging from on the high end 20%, uh, on the low end to 7%. And 59% of upper class white Americans who had children in the last decade used IVF themselves or know a family member that used it. By contrast, that number is 29% for lower-income Americans, 26% among blacks. So um, obviously IVF is disproportionately used by uh, wealthier Americans and white Americans. And I read recently that the uh, 23andMe stock is way, way down uh, from its peak a few years ago. And it seems to me like they would have a good uh, business opportunity to, if they could, uh, if they could use their technology to provide testing uh, of eggs or sperms. Yeah, I think they would do that if they could. But again, at the risk of hammering the point home too hard, the reason that isn't a viable business model at the time is, be- or currently, is because the technology doesn't allow that to be done now. The ability for IVF and for the the quad marker genetic screening, for example, that you have that's pretty common now for women who are pregnant to take, it it will identify severe genetic abnormalities reliably. And so those 
fetuses, or in the case of IVF, those fertilized eggs can be discarded or not not implanted because the genetic marker is so clear for what the undesired outcome is. But in the case of college applicability or college acceptance, I mean, that's just, that's all hypothetical conjecture. It's fantasy now. There is no genetic test that can even come close to reliably telling aspiring parents whether or not they're child that has not even been implanted yet in the uterus is going to be able to go to college or not beyond say for example if the child has down syndrome then he's not going to go to college but beyond that there's not any useful genetic information that's going to be able to tell that one way or the other and so the idea of making that commercially available i think if it if crispr2 worked and if if the associations from the genome-wide association studies now, they became much, much more refined and all of the second and third order effects of changing certain genes were understood, then this would be be something that would be widely adopted and fairly quickly. But the reality is we don't appear to be anywhere close to that at this point. Jeff, where are you on the idea of involuntary eugenics at the state level is it something that you support something you oppose something you're indifferent to something that would be uh that where the devil would be in the details yeah devil in the details i could say um on the extreme end if you have uh, someone who's just a complete monster murderer rapists and they were going to be in a position where they could propagate and have children um i would i would at least be open to uh involuntary sterilization of that individual to ensure that they're they don't propagate because unfortunately or or maybe not just the reality is that a lot of those negative uh traits uh are genetic and so yes i would not rule out involuntary sterilization in some circumstances but it would be something that would be uh, need to be heavily regulated um and certainly not something that's uh except ubiquitous well the insinuation is that with alabama's court ruling um that would potentially make uh, ivf providers liable for destroyed embryos being oppositional to eugenics on the other end in alabama's favor suppose that alabama supports the death penalty and the death penalty in the case of heinous crimes like murder is is eugenic i think i think that's the argument that you're making yeah that's a good point i didn't think about it like that but it has the same effect uh if you kill someone versus sterilize them either way they're not going to reproduce yeah (laughs) if you kill someone you are sterilizing them among other things yeah how about you what would uh what what would you how do you feel about uh involuntarily sterilization my sentiments are definitely libertarian at heart when it comes to these sorts of things in the past maybe i could have begrudgingly made an argument for giving the state the ability to uh, try to nudge people in the direction um 
through the use of incentives for more positive eugenics and uh, more negative eugenics as well, say like child tax credits um, that are, instead of being progressive in nature, like much of the rest of the tax code is, are in fact regressive in nature, where the more you make, the larger the tax credit you get for having a child is. But again, I think you can sell that on the rhetorical grounds that have nothing to do with biology that I mentioned earlier when we were talking about the example of the wealthy couple having a lot of children and the poor couple having fewer children and how that reduces social inequality down the road. Uh, But now after the whole COVIDian nightmare, uh, the last three or four years, I mean, now my opposition to the state at any level having, getting anywhere near any of this in terms of mandating um, either positive or negative eugenic quote unquote is something that I am I definitely opposed to because it's not hard anymore. Maybe in the fa- past it would have seemed a little bit ridiculous, a little bit sensational to argue that, say, uh, heterosexual men with conventional views on morality and the historic composition of the United States, the idea that they would be precluded, that they would be identified simply for, say, posts that they liked on social media as being violent extremists, um, and so, therefore, should not be allowed to to have children. I, th- I think we're not that far from that being the case if the infrastructure for eugenics at the state level were put in place. Well, I agree that the people, uh, if, let's put it this way, if the people who are in charge of COVID policy over the last few years, if those were the same people who were in charge of eugenics policy, I would be completely against it 100% because those people would have uh, have no business making decisions like that based on their terrible track record during COVID. Yeah, we, we don't want the WEF deciding who needs <laughs> to have children and who doesn't. Or the CDC or Anthony Fauci or anybody like that. Or anybody in the broader public health policy arena really the expert class in general, the managerial class, I I don't think that we want them telling anyone whether or not they can have children. Well, there's a lot more we could talk about on this uh, topic. Uh, Fascinating. And we'll probably revisit it at some point, but I'm going to wrap it up there. This is the reality taboo where no topic is off limits. I think we've uh, lived up to that this week. And thanks for listening. Please remember, like, share, subscribe. We'll talk to you next time. And if you have good genes, make sure you're having enough babies. (laughs) 